Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty and homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing, and disparities in healthcare and immigration. This month, in celebration of Black History Month, on the first half of the show, we're going to discuss uh, both the historical relationship between African-Americans and City College and some of the challenges that we have in educating the whole people in ways that provide social mobility to everyone. And so that'll also reflect on our goals moving forward. On the second half of the show, we will talk to the first rapper to be signed by a major record label in 1979. At the time, he was a student at City College, but left to sign with Mercury Records. And I'm going to tell you folks, there are worse reasons to leave college than that you've got a contract with Mercury Records. And now he's interested in returning to college to finish his degree. And so we're going to be really excited to have the opportunity to talk to Curtis Blow. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the history at City College. I'm going to start in 1969 at the heart of the Civil Rights Movement. From June 29, 1969 to August 24th of that same year, a total of 300,000 people gathered in Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem for a series of concerts. Now, the footage of those concerts was locked away for decades until the Roots drummer Questlove found it and created a documentary called The Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. And the film has been nominated for a 2022 Academy Award for Best Original Documentary. A few months earlier, that same year, April 22, 1969, more than 200 African-American and Puerto Rican students occupied 17 buildings here at CCNY. They closed the South Campus for two weeks, and in a show of solidarity, white students took over the North Campus. That's according to uh, NewYorkOne.com. The takeover and the results of the protest are documented in The Five Demands. That's a film currently being co-produced and directed by Greta Schiller, who's a CCNY alum, and Andrea Weiss, who is a professor in the film department here at City College. The film tells the dramatic story of the 1969 student takeover. That little-known two-week student strike resulted in open admission, which was a controversial 25-year experiment that radically remade the university into the most diverse college campus in the country. At the time of the protest, African-Americans and Puerto Ricans only made up 9% of the student body at CCNY, while they made up 40% of the city's high school graduates and nearly the entire Harlem community surrounding the college. Today, according to the 2019 statistics found at CUNY EDU, 32.6% of the student body at CCNY is Latino, while only 18.7% are African-American or of African descent. Now, I want to say a few things about those open admission protests that people don't know. We hear a lot on campus, especially talking to alumni who maybe graduated in the 50s and 60s, who say, sometimes not so happily, that open admissions changed, sometimes they say it ruined CCNY. And I want to acknowledge one thing. At the time of the open admissions process, a lot of people don't know CUNY had a six-year program to roll out open admissions, where open admissions would first take place at the community colleges. And then the assumption was students who maybe didn't have a lot of college experience would be graduating from the community colleges into the senior colleges when they were ready for education. The protest, of course, accelerated that. And so almost overnight, the demographics at City College changed. And it changed in a way where a lot of students who maybe weren't prepared for a city college education, we're suddenly on our campus. So that's one thing that we, we need to acknowledge, that what had been a systematic plan to do the right thing in the face of protest became something that we did immediately. The second point is probably more important, which is that the campus of CCNY today, 
campus that is in the top 10 campuses for diversity and the top five campuses in the country for social mobility, recently ranked number one by the Wall Street Journal for the best value education, would not be the campus we are today without open admissions, without that moment when we decided that if there was going to be a public university in the middle of Harlem, it could not exclude uh, Latino and African-American students in the neighborhood. So was it a rough couple of years as the institution got used to an expanded enrollment and, and started thinking about how they maintained levels of educational excellence while, while bringing in people who maybe didn't have a lot of experience in college? Absolutely. Are we proud of the role that the open admissions period played in creating the city college of today without question. Now, one of the things that come along with uh, expanding opportunities for the whole people on a college campus are some puzzles about how you maintain educational attainment equity across racial uh, and, and gender lines. In other words, we want not just to make sure that we are admitting the right number of African-American Latino students, that we want that population as much as possible to reflect the population of the city. We also want to make sure that once they are on campus, um, all of our students, regardless of who they are, where they came from, how they got here, are graduating at the same rate, are achieving at the same level, leave the college with the same robust job prospects as everybody else. And so to discuss recruitment and retention efforts, I am joined by Celia Lloyd, who is the Vice President of Student Affairs and Enrollment Management here at CCNY, and a relatively new member of our administration, Dr. Naomi Rosso-Stewart, who is the Assistant Vice President of Enrollment Management. And let me just tell you a little bit about my first two guests today. Celia Lloyd has worked at City College since 1998 and is a higher education strategist and change leader. She's an expert in managing integrating student information systems and is an advocate for excellence in student services. She believes that providing mentorship to underserved students is critical to access and retention. And prior to joining CCNY, Ms. Lloyd led student enrollment services as academic services manager at the University of the Virgin Islands. She's got a Bachelor of Science degree from York College, which is a SUNY school, master's degree from St. John's University. She holds a certificate in executive leadership from CUNY, as well as a certificate in educational leadership from Harvard University. Celia, welcome to From City to the World. Thank you, Ben. Okay, I'm also pleased to uh, welcome Dr. Naomi Norso-Stewart, who's recently joined City College as Assistant Vice President of Enrollment Management. She has extensive experience in developing enrollment management and student affairs programming to support the holistic needs of students. Prior to joining the City College of New York, she served as the Director of Enrollment Management Services. Um, we'll talk a little bit about this, the One-Stop Student Service Center and the call center at CUNY's John Jay College of Criminal Justice. In this position, she revamped and expanded the One-Stop Service Center to allow students to address their cross-campus administrative needs in one location. Dr. Norris' student earned a BS from SUNY's Purchase College, an MA from CUNY's Baruch College, an MSED from New York University, and a PhD and MPhil from CUNY's Graduate Center. She is passionate about promoting diversity, equity, inclusion, and access to K-16 education for all. She believes that eliminating barriers for the underserved students is critical in supporting access and student retention. Uh, Naomi, welcome to From City to the World. Let's jump right into this question of how we think about the needs of a place like City College in educating the whole people, right? We, we, this is a phrase that came up when we founded the college. The whole people meant that in a time when most colleges were only educating an elite segment of the population, we were from the very beginning a place that would educate everybody. And of course, if you're going to bring everybody into your campus, you're going to bring in the challenges that everybody has on your campus. And so from a perspective of, of student programming and student services, um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the challenges of educating the whole people. And Celia, I'd like to start with you. 
we're looking at students from diverse populations, and one of the things actually in terms of bringing them in as they're walking in the door, we're working on engaging with their families as well. We found that it's very critical to engage the families in the education process from the get-go. So that they, so the families are walking hand in hand with the students and um, they understand some of the challenges. I will say, once we get the students here, we need to make sure that they're ready to jump into the, um, some of the gateway classes, the basic classes that they need in math, for instance. We do a lot of foundational work when they first come in, in the summertime, to get them ready for math and other courses, in, you know, which they, um, which they may need some assistance. Let me just take a step back and talk about, in terms of student support, the, um, the financial aspect of it, because that is so critical. As a matter of fact, the, on the trajectory, it's, I see admissions and finances, because if students do not know, and if the families don't know how they're going to pay for college, that's the non-starters. So we do a lot with financial aid education, um, making sure that students are ready to pay for college. Students will pay for college. The notion that students want to skate through the system without paying is not true. Students will work hard and make sure that they pay their tuition. So what we do as a college and student affairs and the cost of college is provide a lot of emergency support for students, for tuition, for food and housing security and other support. Students should not be sitting in in the classroom wondering how she or he is going to pay the rent or make the next meal. So I want to really drill down on that because so many people believe that college is so expensive that they'll never be able to afford it, or we hear so much about student debt. But a lot of people don't know the relationship between a family's need, the kinds of financial aid that's available and what they would be responsible for paying. And so Naomi, I wonder if you could speak to, you know, what it's like for students, particularly students that come from families that may not have a lot of money to finance their education at a place like City College. I think what it means for them is just realizing what is out there. And one thing about that is here at City College, we're moving to um, revamp and expand the One Stop. And with the One Stop, is the place where students can come you know, with their families as well to get the advice that they need and they don't have to go to various administrative offices where they feel like it's a silo of like, how do I register for classes? How do I apply for financial aid? And we do have some programming and we will begin to develop additional programs to make sure that students are aware of what it means when October 1st comes and the FAFSA application opens up. You know, what does that mean for you to actually say? Could you explain the FAFSA? What okay, that is? so the, the federal application for financial um, aid for students is the application where students must complete in order for them to be eligible or to be considered for financial aid. In addition, a student that's in-state, um, also the TAP application as well. This will allow students, one, for us to figure out ex exactly what their family can contribute to um, their education and also to see if they're eligible for any other scholarships or any other type of aid. And with that, that goes into the holistic approach of that once you know what your financial aid package is and when you begin to think about that, now you can actually do your registration. Now you can be thinking about all the other activities that you can engage in because the barrier of how to finance your education is there. Especially from coming from a first-generation family where you're the first one to go to college, and sometimes it's language barriers, it's economic barriers, it's just educational barriers where you may be the first one to graduate from your um, from high school. How do you navigate that, and how do you do it in a way that is supported um, by the college, and also building a relationship with the family, making sure that you'll be able to finance your education? And I want to just emphasize something that Naomi just said. If you are a parent of, uncle, aunt of, or a student who's thinking about financing their education, there is a form that you fill out, and it's about this time of year that you start to get it where you can plug in the financial resources that you have, called a FAFSA form, and they will calculate what money they think you need to go to your college. And they will, they will factor in how much tuition will cost. They'll factor in, do you need you know, a Metro card to come and go? Do you need food? Are you gonna stay in a dormitory? All those kinds of costs. We live in a state where 
Um, if you are eligible for financial aid, and over 70% of our students are eligible for full financial aid, you will pay nothing for tuition, and there is an availability of scholarships to help pay for all those other things, uh, metro cards, transportation, food. If you're living in an apartment, you can put those expenses down as well. So that financial aid form is crucial. Here at City College last year, in addition to financial aid from the state, we gave out over $6 million in scholarship support to students, and that ranges, as VP Lloyd was talking about, it ranges from emergency funds to help students who are in trouble, to money to help students participate in research and internships, to money to help them take care of things like transportation and housing. So something I always say to students when they come in, and this is just as much for the parents and the family of students as for students themselves, you've got to study the regulations around financial aid like it's a final exam because that will put money in your pocket now let me just uh, pivot a little bit um celia i want to ask about you know, we talk all the time about how um precarious sometimes it is especially for someone who's maybe the first time in her family to go to college the burden of you know sometimes self-doubt that they have the, the, the challenges of, of not necessarily having somebody at home who can say, oh, I remember when I was in college and I did this and this and this and give you some kind of advice. But I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the moments in a student's college career where they may be in particular danger of dropping out or, or running into trouble. Speak to that a little bit. Yes. I just want to piggyback a little bit back to the financial education because that's a place where um, students fall back. Students are hesitant to bring to our attention that they are um, experiencing challenges. So we're going to be partnering with organizations and doing a lot more with financial literacy, just understanding the full gamut of using your finances, how you stay out of debt, how you manage your credit rating, because all those things factor into your financial aid anyway. We see students who don't have the kind of support that they need. I'm going to be successful if I see someone who looks like me or who's had the same experience that I've had. So we're, we're leveraging our peer mentoring program. Could you describe what a peer mentoring program is? You have a program where you have students who are working on, say, specific projects or specific majors. For instance, if, if I have um, challenges with math, I, there might be a peer mentor, there might be a mentoring group in the math department whom I could go to for assistance. And it's not a faculty member, it's not an administrator, it's a student as myself who's probably a couple of years ahead of me. So I would feel much more comfortable dealing with a student yeah. than I would with a faculty member. Yeah. This, this idea mm -hmm. of students feeling specifically comfortable with people who look like them, I mean, how important is that? And what are we doing on campus? There are many programs within um, the clubs and organizations within the student affairs that students can affiliate with. So it's pretty easy. There's a process, but it's pretty, pretty easy for a student to start a club. So say I came in and I was looking for support in writing a book. Let me just use this as an example. I can create a club of people who have similar interests to get me through that process. The other thing I want to talk about in terms of um, peer mentoring and just support are, are some of our innovative programs. We have some creative programs where students actually can, again, partner with other students, start their own businesses, and start their own businesses with students not only within a specific majors or interest group across the campus. So you have, for instance, where you may have a group of students who are designing a project um, from students from engineering and science and history and whatever, just partnering together. So, so those supports help students to grow. We're also looking at, in terms of the support for students, the soft, we call them soft or essential skills. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes we find students going through our programs who at the time of graduation don't have some of the skills they need. How do I, how do I get a job? Can, or can I get an internship so that I can be ready for the workforce or ready for graduate school? How do I interview? How do I prepare my resume? Those skills are incredibly important as well. This is part of also our support for students. 
Our counseling center provides incredible support for students who are just struggling personally with health and wellness needs. Students can go in, they have private consultations with our advisors and counselors, and it's done in a quiet and private setting so you don't feel intimidated. There's a gamut of support available to students. We, however, work and continue to work to make sure that students are aware of all the support services available to them. So let me ask, and, and this may, uh, Naomi, lead you back to a fuller discussion of, of what One Stop is and how it works, but, but I, I do want to delve a little more deeply into the question of how do we make sure that students from a wide variety of different backgrounds are all well served by the institution. You know, it used to be back in the day when you were a freshman at a CCNY. I've heard so many alumni tell this story. They would all gather in the Great Hall and someone would come on stage, probably the Dean of Students, and he would say, look to your left, look to your right. By the time graduation day comes, one of those people won't be here. We were proud of the fact that an indication of how rigorous we were, what a good school we were, is that we flunked people out. We don't say that anymore. Today, when a student comes to college, the institution makes an implicit commitment to that student that, that we will do everything we can to make you succeed. And so we look at graduation rates and who's graduating in four years and six years. And we want to get everybody over the finish line. What are the challenges that an institution that's taking students from, you know, maybe maybe high schools in the city that, that don't always do a good job of preparing students, or maybe from families where nobody is a role model for, for college. How, what are the challenges and how do we address those? I think some of the challenges, or the challenges that I see is getting to know the students. A lot of times we make, you know, assumptions of where students are coming from and not knowing, you know, what the background story is. And I think the way that you do that is actually being on the ground running. Um, from the first day of classes and my first week here, you know, I saw you and other administration at City College just out there helping students just get onto the campus, eliminating just that barrier of how you get on the campus to show your vaccination. Um, so I think the biggest thing is knowing who your students are, not making the assumptions. A lot of times we rely on data, and that's not the humanistic approach to it. You look at the data to say, hey, this is what we see. At the same time, you know, getting down there saying, okay, how many students that are taking gateway classes that are minorities are having struggles? Myself as a science major, I wish I saw more teachers that look like me to help me transition to be a science major. Sometimes I have to call my dad, who was an engineer. He, you know, he took classes there at City College as well to say, hey, how do you, you know, do this math problem or question? And it was no one there to help. So I think for me, you know, when I move forward with my team, it treats each student as you would want your child to be treated. Mm -hmm. Give them the opportunity to tell you what the story is. Don't make assumptions of why they hear what they need. Sometimes they just need someone to listen. Yeah. Hey, I have financial aid issues. Yes, we'll get to the bottom of it, but this is what's going on. I have someone that has an issue. We're, we're changing. We lost our apartment. And how do we fold that in to say, you know what, we're here to take care of the administrative business, but we're also empathetic to your needs. And we're also looking at ways how we can establish um, things that the population needs. As the student population switches varies, there's different programming that needs to be in place to keep up with the times and the needs of the students. Just as we had during the COVID times, we were able to put in emergency relief funds, things that students needed. How can we help them navigating getting into a class if you're stuck in another country or if your family member fell ill? Yeah. So the thing about it is like looking at the administrative component of it, looking at the educational component of it, and also looking at the humanistic side of what do we need to do to holistically look at the student and move them through so they can come back as alums that give to the school. Yeah, I think a lot of students don't know the breadth of, of, of concerns that we make our business, right? We, we have emergency loans. We, we have, you know, routinely, particularly during COVID, but, but even before that, been concerned with students who may have been displaced from their homes because of a fire or domestic violence or something like that. Um, we have a very well-stocked food pantry that is available every day of the year um, for students to go to if they are hungry. There was a study a little while ago that projected that 40% of CUNY students across the city experienced food insecurity at some time 
during the previous year. And so we want to address that because we know that if a student is worried about making the rent or getting food or getting a babysitter. As much as we can, we include students on our planning committee. Because as administrators, sometimes we forget we're planning for students, but they're not in the room. So um, we try to have students on our planning committee. They get engaged. We get to feed direct feedback from them so we can program for them for their success. In 1979, Curtis Blow became the first rap artist to be signed to a major record label. That year, Mercury released Christmas Rappin' and it sold over 400,000 copies and joined traditional Christmas tunes as a classic. He went on to release 10 albums over 11 years. Some of his best-known songs are The Breaks, Party Time, AJ, Basketball, and If I Rule the World, which became a top five hit on Billboard's R&B charts. In 1986, he collaborated with Dexter Scott King, Martin Luther King's son, to produce a song to celebrate Dr. King's birthday called King Holiday. Love that song. Um, Curtis Blow collaborated with or produced songs for Russell Simmons, Wycliffe Jean, the Fat Boys, Ren DMC, who began his career billed as the son of Curtis Blow. After 2002, after 9-11, he went to the Middle East and performed 17 shows for the U.S. Armed Forces, he performed in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Kyrgyzstan, Jordan, Bahrain, Kuwait, and Oman. When Curtis Blow became the first rapper to be signed to a major record label, he helped legitimize hip-hop and intends to help redeem it. In 2009, he became an ordained minister and says that hip-hop can bring young people back to church. Curtis Blow, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to welcome you. And I wonder if we can start with you just talking about what it was like to grow up in the shadow of City College. You are born and raised in Harlem, and, and so you had our campus, at least in your neighborhood and maybe on your mind from a very young age, and I wonder what that was like. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the beautiful and great intro, Curtis Blow Walker. Curtis Walker, Kurt Walker, was born in 1959, right there on 140th Street between Convent and Amsterdam. And that was the north side of the campus of City College. From an early age, as far as I can remember, I always loved that college. It was like recreation. It was like back to nature with all of the parks and the grass and the St. Nicholas Terrace and that whole park there. Oh my gosh. I remember as I could start to walk, I would go on uh, journeys and missions and we called them explorations mm -hmm. by just going down into the St. Nicholas Park and catching uh, insects and butterflies and all that good stuff. So I remember my first thing about hip hop that I remember goes all the way back to, well, it was the late 60s, of course, uh, in, in Harlem and growing up in Sugar Hill. That was uh, uh, the, the section of Harlem we called Sugar Hill, uh, Malcolm X territory, I remember. Uh, people used to say Malcolm X used to hustle uh, right there on 146th Street in Amsterdam Avenue, five right. blocks to the north of us. And so I, believe it or not, I grew up, I moved to down to Convent Avenue to a building called 260 Convent Avenue, where I moved next door to guess who? Attila Shabazz. That was oh, Malcolm wow. X, his daughter. And I thought it was uh, Betty Shabazz, Malcolm's wife, right? Because one day I was uh, being chased by the gang, right? And I lived on the ninth floor in 260. And so I was running up the stairs and these gangs were right on my tail. And, and I remember getting to the eighth floor and I reached in my pocket to try to get the keys and the keys fell on the floor and I was like, oh my gosh. So I kept running and I got to the ninth floor 
and the door opened up and Betty Shabazz walked out, Malcolm X's wife. And so I went and grabbed a holder of her and I was a shorty during that time. My arms went around her waist and I put my head in into her stomach and I closed my eyes and I said, please, please help me, help me. These boys are gonna kill me, God help me, help me. And right then, that's when the guys, the boys came upstairs and got to the ninth floor. And she saw them and she said, you guys, leave this boy alone. Go back downstairs, leave this boy alone. He's a good kid, leave him alone, go downstairs now. So they went back downstairs and she waited for me and I got my keys and opened my door. And I remember looking back at her and we locked eyes and I said, thank you, thank you. And she threw a thumbs up in the air. She said, you're welcome. So I started break dancing after that because our safe haven was the rooftops. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know about the block 140th Street in Amsterdam going from 140th to 141st. All the buildings are connected, right? Yeah. So you can go to the rooftop and go from 140th Street and run all the way to 141st Street by jumping over the ledges or whatever have you. And so we used to rehearse and practice and break dance up there. And that's where I got my start because the older kids on the block found out about the young Kurt who could do all this footwork and acrobatics and all this stuff. And they put me down with their crew called the Hill Boys. And we used to do battle across on the east side with the summer youth programs, I remember so vividly, they saved my life. Those summer youth programs that City College had, my mother enrolled me in the Each One Teach One program. Way back in 1969, I was playing baseball. I was doing the PAL summer youth programs, and it was a glorious time. My mom kept me out of harm's way by enrolling me in those summer youth programs. So I actually ran track for City College for CCNY and I swam. We had competitions with the, all the co colleges around the, in the New York City area. And we used to run track over at Randall's Island and it was incredible going to the track meets. And, and, and what I was saying about the each one teach one, that was a part of the Rucker tournament that was mm -hmm. down in the polar grounds on 8th Avenue and 155th Street, right? And so when yeah. they moved that up to CCNY, that our gym, the brand new gym, incredible. See, I was a, a local kid in Harlem and on that block. And so I was the first one to go underground, they called it. So I was uh -huh. on Amsterdam Avenue one time over at the uh, Gothel's Hall, and I went in the building like, you know, they have a gym up there on the fourth floor. So I went down to the basement, and, and I was seven years old when I did this. <laughs> I got lost going down oh. in the basement. So I went through the alley down in the basement and traveled and came out at Gothel's Hall on Convent. This, uh, yeah. Wingate is on Amsterdam. So I went yep. from Wingate to Gothel's Hall underground, and we found out that there were a series of tunnels under City College. And I found out, and when I found out, the whole neighborhood said Curtis, young Curtis was the first to go underground. So we used to go from 140th Street in Convent all the way down to 138th Street, or 33rd Street. Street we could because they so had guess, a series of underground tunnels. I got to interrupt you there because people yes. don't know that what we've been doing for the last five years, you know, we've got a bunch of those uh, gargoyles that, that came off the building and we've refurbished uh. some of them and replaced them. But in those tunnels today, there are those gargoyles. And so every year at Halloween, we open the tunnels up. We have a haunted house now. So everybody in the neighborhood can come to City College and go underground and, uh, you know, maybe see some zombies and other kind of monsters down there. So we're, we're proud of those tunnels. I'm really glad you got to experience it as, as a young man. 
Yes, yes, amazing, amazing. To go on to say, you know, the square right there on 140th Street, that was our playground. That was, uh-huh. as a matter of fact, across the street right there by Gospel, there's a little park right there. It's all full up with trees and such right now, but it used to have incredible grass, and we used to play football there. I played four years of community football. Our team was the Vikings, and we were undefeated playing football right there. All right. And so, I, I mean, I grew up and hung out and partied and did everything around in and around City College in the City College area. As a matter of fact, I went to elementary school right there, 138th Street in Amsterdam, PS uh, 192. And then I went to uh, high school right there, 135th Street at the High School of Music and Arts. So uh, all of my academics were locally right there around the city college area. And I remember going back again, meeting Dr. J at those Rucker games at City College. And because my track coach went to college with uh, Dr. J and Dr. J was walking down the street by the registration building uh, and right before the uh, science building. And she stopped me because there was a hot dog stand there all the time. And he was eating a hot dog. And she said, Julius, Julius, come here, Julius. Give me a bite of that hot dog. And he said, oh, bro, bro. Oh, and gave her a bite. She took a big bite. And she said, come here. Now I want you to meet these students of mine. And this is little Kurt right here. Look at, I had, I had a, five trophies. I had two swimming trophies and about three track trophies. I mean, I won the 50-yard dash that day, so I was happy. And Dr. J looked in the back of the car, and he looked at me. He said, oh, my God, look at all those trophies. You had a great day, huh? I say, yeah, yeah, I had a great day. I won the 50-yard dash. <laughs> and he said, well, you go ahead, young, young man. Keep up the great work. And he gave me another thumbs up. And that was my glorious moment. And that's why I made the song Basketball, because uh-huh. it is my favorite sport. I met Dr. J at City College. You got a thumbs up from Betty Shabazz and Dr. J. Those are, those are two very powerful <laughs> thumbs up. And we are now talking to City College uh, alum and students. Mr. Curtis Blow, I wonder if I could ask you, you, you talked about your, your mother enrolling you in, you know, the Each One Teach One program and, and the PAL. And, you know, one of the issues that we sometimes have is when um, students from the neighborhood come to City College, they don't always have a lot of support or not even really support, but knowledge in the family about what it takes for a young person to to navigate uh, college. Naomi said earlier that, that when she was having trouble, she had a, a, a father who was an engineer that she could go to. But could you talk a little bit, Curtis, about the role that your family played in directing you towards CCNY, maybe supporting your studies? What was that like? Well, my mother was everything. I grew up without a dad in my household in Harlem. Mm-hmm. We had a stepdad for a while. But my mom, I remember she was such, I call her an activist (laughs) because she was always supporting, you know, the civil rights movement and always Mm -hmm. watching TV and Dr. Martin Luther King and everything. I remember when they killed Martin Luther King, she came home and she was crying and she was sobbing. I was like, mom, mom, what happened? What happened? Oh, they just killed our, our great hero, our great leader. He was a wonderful man leading us for unity and peace and equality and all this. And she was just crying and boohooing. And I remember going to school the next day and not being a very happy camper with, with the other yeah. students. And so they took me to the dean's office. And I remember our dean talking about to me and forgiving me for 
my anger and just my, you know, response about this whole situation. And so she was always there for me, always supporting me with my academics because she saw something in me. When I was in the third grade, I took a test, a reading test, and I had a 12th grade reading level. So they put me in these IGC classes over at 192. Uh, elementary called intellectually gifted children. So I actually went on to go to EP classes, uh, extra special progress classes in junior high. And of course, I, I passed the test for the high school of music and arts. And so she was always supporting me and my academic career. She always told me with that reading, and with that brain, <laughs> they used to call me the brain. <laughs> and so the whole neighborhood, so I used that as, as my, my calling card. Oh, I, I, I got a, a, a 12th grade reading level. And science and math was always my favorite subject in school. And I used to get hundreds on tests and everything. And so the neighborhood found out. So, you know, they say, you know, it takes a, a whole neighborhood community mm -hmm. to raise a child. And my mom was very vocal about that, telling all of my friends and our family and everyone in the neighborhood about that. So I became the prize of the neighborhood, the young Kurt, who's going to go to college. He vows to go to college, right? Mm -hmm. And everyone supported that in the community. And that was a great thing. That was a big big help to me, that support that I got, not only just from my mom, but everyone else in the community, all yeah. the neighbors. And man, that was, that was incredible. You remember that movie, Boys in the Hood, where yeah, there's yeah. one kid getting ready to sign to football, where he has an academic scholarship to go and then you know, everyone was happy for him and his family and the whole neighborhood and everyone. Then he he didn't get a chance to make it because he got killed by the drive-by. And that was such a big, big traumatic situation. And that happens a lot in the communities of people of color. And so whenever we can get the chance to support someone who has the dream to go to college, we should all support it. And, and I, I think, you know, that that it, it's instructive, too, because, you know, you had that support from the neighborhood. I think as, as colleges like City College more and more realize that we have a responsibility to provide those supports, even if they're not sort of traditionally academic support, you know, if a student has food insecurity or trouble with rent, or they have anxiety and they need to talk to somebody, not necessarily about their classes. And so I think there's a thread from the kind of support you got in the 1970s to the kind of support that I think colleges like City College that are thinking about keeping everybody in the game are working to develop. You said math and science were your real strong parts. And I wonder if, if you would you have thoughts about the relationship between the work you did in music and mathematics? Did your brain kind of go from one to a, to the other in a straight line, or, did, or was it was it a little bit of a yeah to change clothes to do the other? Oh yes, I'm overjoyed that you asked that question because I truly believe that musicians and singers and artists rappers, we are scientists of sound. And that comes from a song by Cool and the Gang called uh, Heaven at Once. And he's mm -hmm. talking to his little brother saying that, yes, we have this talent, but we are scientists of sound, mathematically putting it down. And so I learned this music theory this is the science of music, uh, the circle of keys, knowing how to write a song in the right pitch or in the right key to have this mysterious vibe is a minor key, a minor seventh that we call it, right? And then you have 
different ways that you can create different moods with your music. And definitely, it, uh, science and music are go hand in hand. You can take it as music theory, and we learn music theory in school with every instrument, knowing the qualities and the options of every instrument from the strings to the horns to the percussion to the to the keyboards is all one big scientific mathematical culture. I totally believe there is a strong, strong, strong connection. I've studied it as well and did the research and, and you see if you study music, there is that connection. And the new thing is this mind meditation and using the different frequencies to use this meditation music that will heal your body. And people uh, are just finding out about the 741 megahertz. See, when we record music, we generally record it at 4041 megahertz. That's stereo, right? And so there's another frequency that is underground that is you listen to it it will heal your body it will um, heal uh strokes it will get rid of toxins and disease and infections and can change your mood you know the 528 oh my god if you look up all these they're all on youtube right now so that's okay. the mind meditation that is the future of music using these special frequencies that can now heal your body. So I'm afraid we have only time for one more question. We're coming to the, uh, to the end of the show. I, I am going to send you a book, by the way. I've got a book in my office I just got called the, the Jazz of Physics, which makes that argument as well about frequencies. I enjoyed reading it. But I have one final question. There's a lot of bad reasons to leave City College before you get your degree, you left with a major record deal. So pretty hard to criticize that decision at the time. But you're now in the process of coming back and finishing up those last credits you need for a CCNY degree. Could you tell us why this is something that has become important to you at, at this stage in your life and your career? I am the antithesis of that saying, you can't teach your old dog new tricks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am uh, an avid supporter of education. I think there is a lot still to be learned. Education is, is simply the acquisition of information, and there is so much. We can live three lifetimes and still never find out all the information that is available to us on this planet. And so I will forever be on that quest to obtain yeah. knowledge. I miss it. I actually miss being in the classroom setting and just responding and communicating and learning and dialoguing. It's, it's just a, a great atmosphere and it's a positive one. It only leads to a successful future. I've learned so much in my lifetime, and I have learned how to apply it yep. to my normal everyday life and be fairly successful. I wouldn't say <laughs> I'm totally rich like Jay-Z or somebody, but I'm okay, and I did well, and God <laughs> has blessed me. <laughs> and, yep. and and the other reason is I, uh, I have formed an organization called the United Coalition for Humanity which is a group of people geared to bridge the gap for all organizations and individuals who believe in equal human rights for everyone. So we are out there trying to help people is basically good against evil. You know, we are plagued with so many injustices and problems and situations and issues and from the pandemic to uh, criminal justice reform, sustainability, education, entertainment, sports. Man, this 
life of ours has changed up considerably. So I want to be on the winning team. I want to be a part of the solution and not the problem. Uh, and I think if I acquire my degree or at least get some more knowledge concerning the issues that we are dealing with today, then I can be part of the solution. So UCFH.org is our organization. It's uh, free to join. Uh, we need your support, and you can look us up and learn more about us as well. And we also have a, a big arm, a big leg a department called the Hip Hop Alliance, which is a, like a brand new union that we formed with uh, SAG-AFTRA, the big union, to uh -huh. give entertainers and artists and all the people in entertainment help to sustain and further help them with their careers in music or whatever have you in entertainment. So that's the Hip Hop Alliance. And I think that uh, we can do a lot of help out there in, in the community working for humanity. We are all one big human family. We need to support and love each other and love each other like we want to be loved. Amen. Amen. You know, so we will put those two those two um addresses the ucfh.org and hip hop alliance we'll put those on our website i think you know in some of the last things you said uh, we talk a lot about education as you know preparing people to get good jobs maybe lift themselves or their family or their children eventually out of out of difficulty or poverty you bring up the other aspects that we we just can't afford to underplay which is it is a joy to learn and to study and to be with other people who are learning and studying and, and drawing on them. So I want to thank you for shining that light on the work that educators all around the world uh, do. And I mean from parents to college professors. Well, that's our show for today, everybody. I want to thank you for listening to From City to the World. I want to give a special thanks to our, our three guests. Uh, Celia Lloyd, who is the Vice President of Student Affairs and Enrollment Management here at the City College of New York. Dr. Naomi Nroso-Stewart, who is the Assistant Vice President of Enrollment Management. And a very special thanks to the, he said he wasn't that successful, but my script says a very special thanks to the legendary rapper, Curtis Blow, for sharing fond memories of his time uh, in Harlem growing up at, at City College in the late 1970s. I want to thank you all for listening to From City to the World. The show is produced by Angela Harden, and I help a little bit. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate uh, all three of you for, for spending time with me this week. And, Curtis, I just, I just wanted to say that my husband has all your vinyls. There you go. <laughs>